we're talking about wealth fantasies. And um, wealth can include, as we're defining it, can include material goods, currency, anything that money can buy, real estate, um, anything that represents material value. Um, now, wealth is a part of God's good creation, and it is given to us as a gift. Um, it is necessary and good uh, for us to thrive as, as human beings. And so wealth is not bad. Uh, wealth is not something that we uh, should consider to be something that God hates. Uh, what God hates is, is, is the service and the worship of wealth. Um, for many of us, I think, uh, not all of us, but for many of us, we feel like there's just not enough wealth. That we need about like 20% more wealth to really make it. Um, a lot of us feel squeezed in our financial lives. We have student loans that we're barely making payments on. We have student payments that, because we're, we're currently a student, we're barely getting that, that payment uh, made. Or we feel cramped in our, our housing situation. We need more bedrooms in our house. Um, and, uh, and, and bedrooms come at a cost that we cannot pay yet. Some of us are using old kitchen appliances that are driving us absolutely crazy. And if we just had a little bit more wealth, we could just get that Vitamix or whatever and new stove and, and it would be like, oh, my problems would be solved. The person at Costco told me and demonstrated to me. Some of us just want to save for retirement. We can't save for retirement. Everyone tells us how bad we are. But, we, you know, we're, and we're trying. We, we need an emergency fund. We know we need an emergency fund. But we're, and we're trying, but we can't because there's just not enough. Some of us, we, we need to see a doctor. We need to see a therapist. We need to see a chiropractor. But we just don't because we don't have the funds. There's just not enough. Um, and, and some of us, we just feel the pinch. We feel like, man, life could be so much easier. I could bear life more if I had just a little bit more. Um, more money means like a vacation to the Bahamas in the dead of winter. Just a three-day vacation. That's all I need in the dead of winter. Um, or a car that just works. Just a car that works. Or just a computer that works. You know? If I just had a little bit more, I could get it. Um, or maybe you just like, hey, I just want to be more generous, you know? I wish I could treat my friends to dinner. I wish I could give money to people who ask for it. I, I, I wish I could donate to my favorite charity, but I can't because I just don't have enough. A lot of us feel that way. Now, when we start to grow weary of feeling there's not enough, there's not enough wealth, we can start to fixate on wealth. We can start to fixate on wealth. We can start to fantasize about wealth. The imagination kicks in and tries to bridge the gap between what we have and what we wish we had. We start to dream about that working car, start to dream about that amazing kitchen appliance or that emergency fund or just having our loans paid off or just opening up our E-Trade account and seeing a couple more zeros on the end. This is called wealth fantasy. And not only do we dream about the wealth that we get, we dream about a magic way to get it. We dream about writing the hit song that all of a sudden makes us wealthy, or writing the, the best-selling book that just all of a sudden solves all of our problems, and, or, or, or maybe winning the lottery, or, or maybe our business taking off, um, and, or maybe we just receive the amazing inheritance. We like, you're like, we know, Grandma, that you're hiding something. 
Now, what's wrong with this? Is this just a harmless thing, or is this something we need to pay attention to? Let me tell you a story. Um, so Phil Plate of Discovery Magazine uh, reported that in October of 2009, thousands of people gathered at the Knox Shrine in Ireland, and uh, they, they gazed collectively upward into the sun. And they were looking for a vision of the Virgin Mary. Why were they doing this? Well, uh, earlier in the week, uh, Dublin-based clairvoyant Joe Coleman predicted that Our Lady would appear at the old parish church uh, at 3 p.m. And so everyone believed him. Everyone went to the old parish church, and they started looking upward at the sun. And here's what some of them reported. They said, of course it, it, it can cause you, uh, or sorry, the reporter said, of course it can cause you to see things when you do this. Of course you're going to see visions when you look up at the sun. The retina floods with light, the retina in your eye floods with light and gets saturated, and it makes you see after images with illusions of color, movement, and other weird things. And that's just what the Pilgrims of Knock reported. Joseph Tunney um, of Castlebar said, I'm 53 years old and I've never seen the sun go like that before. I witnessed the sun go in all different colors, yellow, red, and green. Then it completely darkened and began to shimmer. Sometimes the sun emitted a clean, bright light, and then it would darken again. Mr. Tunney's wife, Nina, said, The sun was spinning in the sky. I was experiencing a feeling of total happiness. It is a feeling I would love to experience again. It was amazing. I felt marvelous. Now, what happened several weeks after they found was that all these people who gathered to look up at the sun to see something beautiful had a condition called solar retinopathy. Maybe you know the correct pronunciation of that. I don't, obviously. Solar retinopathy, which is partial blindness from fixating directly on the sun. Um, what happens is the sun's electromagnetic solar radiation um, uh, uh, does damage to the retina. So the light-sensitive tissue lining the inner surface of the eye gets cooked um, the radiation literally cooks the exposed tissue, destroying the rods and cones of the retina and creating a small blind area, making it impossible to see other things after you've been gazing at the sun. Now, just as gazing and fixating directly on the sun, which is a good thing, the sun is a good thing, but when you fixate on it, the sun can damage the retina of our eyes and cause physical blindness. So too, fixating on material wealth, fantasizing about material wealth, can damage the retinas of our imagination and cause moral and spiritual blindness. In other words, fixating on fading wealth makes us blind to our unfading wealth. Fantasizing about fading wealth, wealth that won't last, as Jesus taught in Matthew. Fixating and fantasizing on fading wealth makes it impossible, makes us blind to our unfading wealth, to our greater inheritance. Our imaginations need to see and rejoice in our unfading wealth, which is God's inheritance to us through Jesus. Um, but when we're distracted and when we fixate on the fading wealth, the money, the real estate, the things that we cannot take with us when this life is over, it becomes nearly impossible for us to appreciate or connect with our inheritance in Christ. So Ecclesiastes 
which you may have open to you. If not, I invite you to turn there. Ecclesiastes is a reflection upon the life of King Solomon. It's a reflection on what, what his life means. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes speaks with the voice of Solomon and says, here's what the, here's what the life of Solomon meant. Now, now listen, Solomon had both fading wealth and unfading wealth in spades. Okay? He had both. He had both fading wealth that was ephemeral and unfading wealth in spades, more than any other king in the whole history of Israel. I think the real drama of the life of King Solomon was this. Which type of wealth would capture his imagination? That's the real question hanging over the life of King Solomon. Would unfading wealth capture his imagination or would fading wealth capture his imagination? Um, Consider the unfading wealth of Solomon. Consider the the non-material but nevertheless valuable inheritance that had been given to him. He didn't earn. It was just given to him. So first of all, he knew the living God. He knew the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And that God walked with him and blessed him and invited him to lead. Um, He was a part of God's living story. God said, I want you to play a major role in the story of the renewal of all things. And God invited him into that story and gave him a major role. Um, He had God's law. That was a part of his unfading wealth. He had the law of God which revealed to him God's love and which invited him to flourish as God had instructed. He had that. He could have opened it any time and reflected on it. I mean, consider this bit of unfading wealth. Solomon got to be king, the king who built God's temple after thousands of years, after generation upon generation of Israelites had given their lives for the promise of the, uh, building God's temple. Solomon got to be the one who actually built it, and he was given the wealth to do it. The wealth of the nations came streaming in, and Solomon had this opportunity to build what, uh, what God had promised to his people for, for, for millennia. Um, Israel was at a time in its history when it was no longer under threat from its enemies. Consider that. For generation after generation, Israel was, was, was under military threat, and finally, they had a capacity to bless the nations, not just defend themselves against the nations. If only Abraham had been alive for the life of King Solomon. If only he had been alive to see with his own eyes what God had promised when God told Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great and, I, and through you I will bless the nations. If only he could see the opportunity that Solomon had. Solomon received that blessing from God as an unfading inheritance, as unfading wealth. Would he see that? Would he appreciate it? Would he live into that? Or would he turn to the fading wealth, the trappings, the stuff, the material security that felt so real, maybe even more real than the grand story that God had invited him to be a part of? What captured his imagination? Let's look at Ecclesiastes 2. I, reflection on King Solomon, said in my heart, so let's just stop there. Okay, I said in my heart, 
It's not a prayer, friends. It's an inward curvature. Let's keep reading. Come now, speaking to himself, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Friends, where is God in this statement? Where, where is God's story? Where, where, where is Yahweh? Who, who made Solomon's life happen? Who, who made the kingdom of Israel happen? Where is God? He, he's not in this statement. He, he's not in this dialogue. There's no intersecting of God's story with Solomon's story. It's just Solomon's story. It's just whatever Solomon wants to do. It's just what Solomon's interested in. He's not challenged. There's no help from the outside shining light into his life, shining light into his imagination. He's staring at something else, something he's not supposed to be staring at, the potential for whatever money can buy. Let's read verses 4 through 6. This is what he, he, uh, he made. I, I made great works. Verse 4. I, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. You know what's interesting is that so much of this sounds like the Garden of Eden. Doesn't it? Is it interesting? It sounds like the flourishing Garden of Eden. And what's wrong with the Garden of Eden, right? What's wrong with like some natural beauty? What, what, what's wrong with, with, with vineyards and, and gardens and parks and, and, and fruit trees? I mean, I, this is like your pipe dream, all right? Living in, living in the city with all kinds of parks and, and green space available to you. There's nothing wrong with it. It's beautiful and it's good. God made it to be good. The difference is God made the Garden of Eden for others so that others can thrive, so that others can be raised up, so that more humans can be made, so that more people can be part of the great drama of God's love in Christ the problem with this vision, you can see it right there in the text. It's for myself. Over and over again. Verse 4, great works I built, uh, I've made great works, I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools of which to water the trees of the growing field. I made it for myself to complete the story of my own pleasure, to complete the story of wealth completing my life. I fixated on fading wealth for myself. Where does that lead us? Where does that lead Solomon? Verse 7 through 9, he begins to use people. I'm so glad that this is not shielded from us, um, this history. I, I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Nothing wrong with hiring employees, but there's a difference between having employees and having an entourage. And this is an entourage. This is for Solomon's pleasure and benefit. Guys, he's buying sex. That's what he uses money for. He just, that's what happens when money begins to rule. It can do anything. Well, it could just buy me sex. 
It's not meant to be attractive, this vision of, of, of the good life. It's realistic, actually. He begins to use people, and that is also what happens to us when, when we start to fixate on wealth. We start to use people, too. People become commodities. People become something we step on. People become uh, either useful to our monetary gain or not useful to our monetary gain. We become less free to love people who have nothing to give us financially. So, uh, chapter 5, which is also included in your text. Um, here's what Solomon is saying. I fixated on fading wealth, and it left me blind. That's the summary but he says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, when you get more wealthy, there's going to be more people who want a piece of your wealth. You're going to get more knocks on the door. You're going to get more solicitations. All of a sudden, your life becomes about managing, uh, managing wealth. And he realized, I thought it was going to make me happy. It didn't make me happy. Um, and King Solomon couldn't see, the, the real problem is he could not see his unfading wealth um, of his distinct calling in God's story. There was a distinct and beautiful calling that he had, and he missed it. He totally missed it. And the result was that he forfeited all of his unfading wealth. The fading wealth was going to go away anyway. He forfeited his unfading wealth. And this always seems to happen. When, when we fixate on fading wealth. Solomon stopped worshiping God. It says in other parts of, uh, of the scriptures that uh, he, he abandoned the faith of his fathers and he turned, he bent over towards foreign gods. And what happened was the kingdom of Israel that he had held together in unity split into two and started fighting with one another. And then eventually the whole kingdom, one right after the other of Israel, um, became subjects, they became slaves again. It was, like the, um, it was like the rewind tape got hit. And uh, instead of being slaves in Egypt, they were now slaves in Assyria and then Babylonia. The beautiful temple that Solomon built, for which, for which uh, thousands upon thousands of Israelites had given their lives and waited for and hoped for, got completely leveled. It got completely destroyed. So the fading wealth gets destroyed, the unfading wealth gets destroyed. And we can trace all of this down to the breakdown of the imagination. We've seen this again and again in the story of God's people. It begins with the breakdown in the imagination. What will the imagination see? What will the retinas of our imagination, of our spiritual organ, be, be exposed to? Which type of wealth will capture our imagination, friends? Um, it's fair to say that this may be one of the central questions of our life as well. Will, will we, what will capture our imagination? Will the fading wealth capture our imagination or the unfading wealth? Which one? I think it's fair to say that because we have both in spades as well. And I know it doesn't feel like that. For many of you, it does not feel like that. Um, I know that you feel limited. I know that you don't feel wealthy. But... Let's just think back to the time when you went overseas. Remember that time? Um, when you went to a, to a non-U.S., non-Western European country, and, and like you compared your life with 
the life of people there and you realize that there's this huge disparity and all of a sudden like, oh yeah, I have lots of privileges and oh yeah, I have lots of opportunities and oh yeah, I have lots of earning potential and oh yeah, I have lots of educational opportunities and oh yeah, I've got a lot. I do have a lot. Even though I feel squeezed, I have so much. So, so much that I don't deserve. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't born with this stuff. I, it was given to me. I didn't earn it. Um, I looked this up. If you make $290 a week, which is $40 a day, if you make $40 a day, that adds up to $12,000 a year. You're in the top 8% of earners in the world. Top 8%. $290 a week. Now, for some of you, that may seem like a lot. For other of you, that seemed like, hey, way below. I couldn't survive on that. Just, but just FYI, that's just a tiny taste of the incomparable wealth, fading wealth, that we have access to. We live in a major global city. There's major opportunities here. Major opportunities for education, major opportunities for wealth generation, for getting a job. It's impressive. Um, now again, it's not wrong to have wealth. I, I want you to seek out opportunities to make wealth. I want you to take the, the, uh, the Financial Peace University course that Joe Clark maybe will lead next year. We'll see. Um, but uh, we will continue to offer that course to teach you how to pay off your debt, to teach you how to build up an emergency fund, to teach you how to be generous. That's not wrong. Uh, but which one will capture our life? Which one will capture our imagination? Which one will, will take up those quiet moments when we don't have to think about anything else? What are we going to fantasize about? What story is going to click? What tape's going to play? Is it about our unfading wealth or about our fading wealth? Because that makes all the difference. When the imagination breaks down, the life breaks down. When the life breaks down, the vocation breaks down. You become less capable of loving people. You become less capable of living the story that God has written for you. So what tape's going to play and what's going to capture our imagination? Let's look at, briefly, our unfading wealth. Jesus alluded to it, but we're going to look directly at it. Turn to Ephesians 1. Just a page over, two pages over. Ephesians was a book written to some of the first people to ever believe in Jesus. They're trying to understand what the life of Jesus meant and what following Jesus looked like. And the book of Ephesians was, was one of the ways that was explained. And it has continued to serve the church. It has continued to turn, uh, serve people who turned to Jesus and asked, how do I follow this man? Um, and so... Um, uh, it is also one of the ways that God heals our imagination is like reading the book of Ephesians and, and seeing what is unseen in the kingdom of God. So we're going to do that briefly here. Look with me in verse 11. It says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a spam email to you? Do you kind of, does the same thing happen in your brain when you read this as when you read the spam email from like the person who says like, Madam so-and-so left you an inheritance. Like, okay, yeah, right, I understand. Like, that is spam. Is this spam? Is this spiritual goobity glock 
Like, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, we need to see what this actually means. Because it's tangible. Not only is it real now, the reality of it, as C.S. Lewis demonstrates in his book, The Great Divorce, the reality of it gets deeper and richer and thicker and more tangible and more joyful and more intense and more explosive the longer we dwell with it. It begins now, gains momentum as we follow Christ, and on the other side of death, when Jesus resurrects our bodies and makes all things new, we will see what he has always been doing in giving us this unfading wealth. But it begins now in the imagination and extends to the life, extends to the vocation, extends to the relationships. So we need to see what is part of our unfading wealth. I'm going to point out three things. Three things in our vault, as it were. The first thing is that we have an epic story to tell. We have an epic story to tell. I, I want you to think of a person that you admire. They could be someone you know, someone you don't know. Woman, man. Think about someone that you really, really look up to. Okay? Maybe it's Coach Eric Taylor of the Dillon Panthers. Maybe... It's someone who actually exists, like Mother Teresa. Maybe it's your boss at work that you totally look up to. Someone that you really admire. And let's say that that person saved your life. They went out of their way and they, they saved your life. You were going to die. And they stepped in and, and, they, and they delivered you from certain end. And not only that, let's say that that person gave their life for you. Let's say that that person, in the process of saving your life, they died. They came to an untimely death, and, and, like, and they did it because they really loved you. And now let's just say you had a chance to tell that story to some of their favorite people. Some of the people they, they, that they spent most of their time with. Some of the people that, that they really invested in. And you got a chance to... To go to, the, to go to that group of people and tell that story. This woman saved my life. She gave her life for me. And you got a, you got a chance to tell that story. They'd be gathering around a campfire. Everyone's ready to hear how it happened. And maybe through a song or maybe through a story or maybe through a poem, you tell your story. And, and, that, and that story leads to rejoicing. And that story leads to per, per, uh, potentially more stories of other ways that this woman, this man, sacrificed and gave their life. Um, worship is a response to the Son of God who had all the glory and all the riches coming to live our life and pour out his resources and to give his life so that he could save ours. And he's done it for each of us he offers it to each of us, and for those of us who have said yes, we've seen how his life-saving story has saved us in a unique way. We can talk about things that held us captive before that no longer hold us captive. We can talk about the hope that we have now that we did not have before. We can tell an amazing, epic story of how Jesus Christ gave his life 2,000 years ago on a cross, and the benefits of his death saved our life and will save our life on the other side of death. 
We have a story to tell. And that's what Ephesians refers to as the praise of his glory. Read with me in verse 12. Um, It talks about how God gave us an inheritance and chose us to be part of his story. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory is our entire life telling the story, telling the epic story of how we were delivered, of how we were saved, of how we were helped. And again, it says in verse 14, um, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When we are in the presence of God, whether in worship on Sundays or in, uh, around a huddle in our small groups or at work or in the presence of God in heaven, we are to the praise of his glory. We are essentially there with a story to tell. And we are essentially there to hear the other's stories. That is a key part of our inheritance in Christ. That is one of the most treasured, valuable things that we have been given. It is our story. So what's your story? I mean, one of the ways for you to fix your eyes, take your eyes off of the fading wealth, onto the unfading wealth, is consider, what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? And begin to write about that. Begin to treasure it. Begin to point your eyes to that because I guarantee you, you will have an opportunity to share that story with other people. And when you do, you'll realize how treasured it is, how valuable it is, how joyful it is. We have an epic story to tell. Number two, we have an epic company to keep. Think about the other people around the campfire, all of them with stories to tell. Um, Verses 15 through 18 says this, For this reason, because I, Paul, have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. See, Paul was treasuring the, the, the Ephesians. You know, and the Ephesians needed him. They had nothing to give him. They were not, they were not um, uh, people that he was using in his program. He was just so grateful for them. He was overflowing with gratitude for the Ephesian church. And verse 17 says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Why? What's the purpose? What do we need to see? Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Having the eyes of your imagination healed. So that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In other words, I need you to see what I'm seeing, Ephesians. That the other saints are part of your inheritance. Um, There was a... uh, a palliative care nurse anonymously wrote an op-ed recently, um, and it was called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Um, She says this, For many years I worked in palliative care. My patients were those who had gone home to die. Some incredibly special times were shared. I was with them for the last three to the last 12 weeks of their life. People grow a lot when they are faced with their own mortality. And I learned never to underestimate someone's capacity for growth. Some changes were phenomenal. Each experienced a variety of emotions as expected. Denial, fear, anger, remorse, more denial, and eventually acceptance. Every single patient found their peace before they departed. When questioned about any regrets they had or anything they would do differently, common themes surfaced again and again. And one of the five, number four on her list was this. Listen, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. 
She says this, Often they would not truly realize the full benefits of old friends until their dying weeks, and it was not always possible to track them down. Many had become so caught up in their own lives that they had not let golden friendship, or they had let golden friendships slip by over the years. She says there were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort that they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they are dying. Friends, the people of God, whether they are wealthy financially or whether non-wealthy financially, are gifts of God for the people of God. And when we are fixated on fading wealth, we stop seeing that. We stop seeing how wealthy people can be, even if they can't benefit us financially at all. Friends, we are called to let our imagination see our friends, people here at church, people in the kingdom of God, as the unfading gifts of God. So we have an epic story to tell, epic company to keep, and finally, we have an epic power available to us. An epic power available to us. Verse 19 says this. Borrowing from verse 18, I pray that you have the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you can see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. This is nothing less, friends, than the light of Christ. This power is nothing less than the light of Christ. It's the fire in the middle around which all the great stories are told. Jesus is the fire that never goes out. Looking on him restores your sight. It restores your imagination. And it never blurs, and it never ruins your sight. It only heals and completes your sight and allows you to see what's real. The Book of Common Prayer refers to Jesus as the gracious light, the pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed. This is the light that heals our blindness now, that will resurrect our bodies after we have died, and it will fill us with the very life of God. When fading wealth becomes our only source of power, we stop praying, because we stop believing that God's power is relevant. That's why when we hear you have an inheritance, you've gained an inheritance, we go, oh, that's just a spiritual spam email. Because the power of wealth is ever so real. We stop praying. We stop believing that God's power is at work in the world. The Christian teaching is that God's power and God's story is intersecting with the physical uh, existence that we have. Intersecting all the time. And it's always available to us. For those of us who say yes to Jesus, and for those of us who turn outward and upward to God, we say, help. I need your help. I need your power. The immeasurable power that I cannot generate on my own. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that promises to raise my rotting body from the grave and give me immortality. What power is that? And it's available now. It's part of your inheritance. It's part of your inheritance. It's part of the unfading wealth that only gets more real and tangible with time. So we need to identify our fixation. What are you fixated on? What do you tell yourself stories about? What will solve all your problems if you just get it? How many zeros do you need? Which debts do you need paid off? Again, these are not bad things. These are good things. Is it your source of hope? Identify what your source of hope is. And then let us turn to the unfading wealth. 
Turn to our inheritance. Turn to the story that we have, the people that God has given us, and the power of God given to us in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.